We are a legitimate scientific research organization whose charter just happens to be studying paranormal phenomena or ghosts. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is February 9th, 2008, and this week we're going to go in a whole different direction here for the program. We're going to delve into an area of esoterica that we haven't really even looked at yet, and that is the ghost genre, mainly the ghost hunting genre that has exploded on the paranormal scene over the last couple of years. We're going to finally be digging into this subject this week with our guest, Larry Flaxman, founder of the Arkansas Paranormal and Anomalous Studies team, Our Past. Throughout this lengthy interview, we're going to be covering a number of different facets to the ghost hunting phenomenon. First, we're going to look at, of course, the ins and outs, creation and evolution and research methods of Larry's group. Plus, we're going to look at some of the staples of ghost hunting, like EMF meters, EVPs, orbs, and just the whole group mentality of the ghost hunting scene. I was very impressed with Larry's take on a lot of these subjects and very surprised by his point of view on some of this stuff. In addition to all that, yes, we do some big picture discussion on the ghost hunting field, the ghost hunting fad, the amazing explosion in popularity for ghost hunting and the pluses and the minuses of that rapid growth. It's a lot of new terrain for BOA Audio, but rest assured we maintain our usual flavor for in-depth esoteric discussion. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Larry Flaxman, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Larry Flaxman is the founder and president of the Arkansas Paranormal and Anomalous Studies team, known as RPAST. He has been actively involved in paranormal research and investigation for over 10 years, and melds his technical, scientific, and investigative backgrounds together for no-nonsense, scientifically objective explanations regarding a variety of anomalous phenomena. He's appeared in numerous newspaper, magazine, radio, and television interviews, and has authored several published articles regarding science and the paranormal. Larry also serves as technical advisor to several paranormal investigation groups throughout the country. His website is www.rpast.org, A-R-P-A-S-T dot org. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 15th, 2008. Larry Flaxman, founder of the Arkansas Paranormal and Anomalous Studies team, talking about ghost hunting on BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the All of America Audio. Our guest this week is Larry Flaxman. He is the founder of Our Past, which is the Arkansas Paranormal and Anomalous Studies team. And he's going to tell us all about what that organization is all about. We had some emails from folks who wanted us to do some EVP-type guests. And instead of just going the route of bringing somebody on, you know, listening to the EVP and then the both of us talking about what we thought we heard, I wanted to really talk to somebody who's out there in the field 
doing the research, gathering those EVPs, and gathering the other evidence that other people don't seem to know about, and really get to the bottom of this ghost hunting sort of situation that's really taken the esoteric world by storm. Uh, we don't do a lot of ghost hunting stuff here on the show, but like I said, I want to get somebody who's serious about this and also isn't just jumping on the bandwagon, if you will, for uh, studying the paranormal just because it's now popular all of a sudden via basic cable. He also comes via a strong recommendation from previous VOA Audio guest Marie Jones, who I have just the utmost respect for. So when she sent me Larry's name, I checked out his website, and I knew he'd be perfect for Banal of America Audio. So, Larry, welcome to the show, and it's great to have you here. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Let's start out, I guess, with the bio, the background. Who is Larry Flaxman? How did you get interested in the paranormal? And what inspired you, really, to, to sort of search out the answers to these mysteries? Gosh, that's uh, several questions in one. Well, let's see. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been interested in, I guess you would, you would say, unexplained phenomena, probably more so than, than specifically paranormal, mm -hmm. uh, for about 12 years. Um, you know, like pretty much anybody else, uh, the search for unknown is really something that has always interested me. Um, as I've gotten older, uh, the past couple of years, I've started to realize my own mortality. Um, as part of that, I've, I've sort of shifted my focus a little bit and wanted to concentrate a little bit more on the paranormal side of, of the unknown phenomena. So I guess that's really really kind of why I, I started our past um, looking for answers. Um, I, I really wanted to, to do a lot of things that a lot of the other organizations that were out there uh, are not doing. Um, I searched and searched and searched. I was part of other organizations, learned quite a bit, um, but there just was not the scientific focus that I really wanted. Um, that I really wanted. Um, my background is, is scientific. Um, it's a combination scientific and investigative. Um, so the methodology of our past is, is basically uh, founded around that, that we are a 100% science-based organization. Um, we are not ghost hunters. We actively tell people, you know, we are not ghost hunters. We do not do uh, the things that you see some of the other groups claiming to do. Um, we are a legitimate scientific research organization whose charter just happens to be studying paranormal phenomena or ghosts. What we generally do is we look at fundamental environmental conditions um, that we believe change when a paranormal uh, event occurs. So that there are certain things that we've been able to identify that change slightly uh, in, in the environment, um, either immediately preceding or, or um, right after a paranormal event, and that's, that's basically what we do, is we look at environmental changes. We use state-of-the-art equipment. Uh, we have approximately $250,000 worth of equipment that we use. Um, we have a wow. custom-built relational database where we will enter the data uh, captured into and look for cross-correlative patterns among the data from the different uh, investigations that we do. So what we really do is we are a, I guess you could, if you really wanted to distill it down, we're, we're an environmental monitoring group. But you do focus like on, on, you know, people that say they have ghosts in their house or there's a Absolutely. haunted places yeah. type of thing. Yeah, that primarily is our focus. Um, we do, oh, we probably do between four to six investigations a month. Um, we are a member of the TAPS family. Uh, we are booked out now with investigations from people contacting us, already booked out through uh, April 2008, and that's with uh, at least two investigations a month. Some inv some months we actually have four, so. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, we we stay really really busy. Um, you know, there are several other ghost hunting, I guess you would say, groups in Arkansas, um, but really from a legitimacy standpoint, people are contacting us because they're looking for scientific answers much more so than you know new age spiritual type answers, Absolutely. and that's what we provide. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, you know, I go down to the store and I trip over a ghost hunting group, it seems, nowadays. Uh, they're everywhere. Well, how many people do you have in the organization? And, and sort of talk about the evolution. How it, Obviously, you talked about how it started because you really wanted to fill that niche that you didn't think was being was being looked at as far right. as uh, ghost research groups. We won't call right. you a ghost hunter. So I guess just talk about the evolution of our past because uh, just based on my own experience of sort of like starting a website, starting a think tank, uh, you know, it starts out small, but then I'm looking at your website, arpast.org, A-R-P-A-S-T dot O-R-G, and you've got quite a few uh, members there. You've got uh, we do. quite a crew there. We do. Uh, we currently have approximately 150 members. Um, there are quite a few members that are outside of our, outside of our home state of Arkansas. Um, we have members from all over the United States as well as international as well. So we've, we've really kind of expanded outside the U.S. Uh, borders as well. Um, we, how we started, um, actually February will, will be our one year anniversary. Um, as I mentioned previously, there was another organization, um, that I was affiliated with that we had a little bit of a, I guess you would say a falling out or a, um, kind of a, a disagreement, uh, about the direction of the organization. So I decided to start our past. Uh, when I did that, 28 members from that previous organization left to follow me. So that was kind of the, the genesis of our past is we started from a previous group. Um, we really wanted to focus more on the scientific aspect. Uh, the other organization was starting to focus a lot more on the on the um, spiritual side of things, and we really wanted to kind of shy from that and move specifically to science. Um, we have consultants that we work with now uh, from all over the U.S., um, actually all over the, the country or all over the world as well. We've got one in Singapore. We've got a consultant in California, New York. We work with um, doctors, physicists, people that are considered um, the best of the best in the industry. We are trying to align ourselves with legitimate scientific research. Mm -hmm. um, we really want to talk to and hold lines of uh, communication with people that are outside of the ghost hunting um, niche, I guess you would say, people that are, are within the standard disciplines of science, physicists, people that are in um, electrical engineering, anything that could be useful as possible explanatory causes for some of the phenomena that we study. And uh, just to sort of jump in on what you said there, when you reach out to these sort of uh, highly respected, you know, professional mm -hmm. industry type folks, uh, are they usually people that come to you or do you guys find them? And what's the, what's the reaction like when you tell them about what you do and what you're looking for and that kind of thing? Because I'm sure it varies. It does. It, it varies widely. Um, with some of the shows that are out there, as you had mentioned, there's, you know, ghost hunters on every corner now, it seems like. There's also the same thing with the TV shows. There's, you know, a half a dozen TV shows at any one time that are, are paranormal-based programming. So there really is a wide exposure to that, to the public uh, knowledge base. So a lot of these individuals, are, are their first exposure to paranormal research is really from watching the TV shows. You know, they're watching Ghost Hunters. They're watching Paranormal State. They're watching some of the stuff that's out there. And, you know, a lot of the people are interested in what they see. A lot of the people you know, watch that and they think, oh, this is just a bunch of, of garbage. It, it really depends. Um, we've had kind of, we've had polar opposite uh, reactions uh, from individuals about when we've approached them for, for uh, 
some research help. But I think once they start looking through our website and they start seeing the legitimacy of us, we're an actual uh, nonprofit organization. We filed for 501c3. We're going after a, an NSF, National Science Foundation, grant. You know, once they actually see the legitimacy of the organization, I think, you know, they take a step back and say, you know, this isn't what we're seeing on TV. This is an actual uh, an actual scientific group. So they're a lot more um, – a lot more positive in that respect and wanting to get involved. So, you know, really all of the people that we've uh, contacted, um, we haven't had any problem with, you know, other than maybe the initial, what do you want me, you know, helping you for? Yeah. Um, but once once we get beyond that and they actually see what their, their purpose within the group would be or what they would be able to contribute, uh, it's been great. Now you said you have all these members and stuff. When someone comes and wants to be a member, you know, chances are they've seen the stuff on TV Right. And, you know, they want to be a part of it. Right. And, you know, it's sometimes hard to separate the wheat from the chaff, the serious people from the people who are just in it for thrills and giggles. Yep. Um, how do you sort of deal with that sort of thing? How do you weed out uh, the loons <laughs> from, <laughs> from the people that actually you really want to have working with you? Right. Well, um, we are actually very selective about membership. Uh, we currently have closed off membership just due to that very reason. Mm -hmm. um, of course, during, you know, our most popular time of the year is usually around Halloween. That's, you know, we start doing a lot more radio and TV and, you know, people start getting more interested, but then, you know, they, they sign up and then never to be seen again. Those are the people kind of like what you're talking about that yeah. just kind of sign up just for the thrill of it. Or there may be some individuals that will go on an investigation and they'll see that the 99% of the investigation is pretty boring. It's just sitting around and it's not anything like what you see on TV and they decide, hey, this isn't for me. I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the people, like I, like I just mentioned, they weed themselves out. That's, you know, they decide it's just not for them. It's not what they want to do. People don't want to commit to the training regimen that we have. They just don't want to put in the time. They don't want to put in the effort to actually learn how to use scientific methodology and use the equipment that we use. Um, but, you know, there's there's a bunch of reasons. Other than the people weeding themselves out, um, you know, that's that's really – that's how we kind of keep our ourselves controlled. Yeah. Chances are if someone's, you know, if they're not getting the thrill from it, they're not, you're not just, you're just not going to hear from them again. So probably No, if somebody is really interested and, and they really want to be a contributing member of the team, you know that pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, the, the people that put forth the effort and the people that actually, you know, go the distance, they, they make themselves known pretty early in the relationship. And talk about the training aspect of our past, because I was really impressed with that. I'm a huge uh, skeptic of ghost hunting groups in general. So, right. um, you know, that's really not my bag in and of itself. I'm more of a UFO Bigfoot guy. Mm -hmm. But, of course, you know, I dabble in all genres, so I'm interested in all of them. Sure. Um, but I'm very, like, I'm very down on ghost hunting just because of the nature of uh, the field as it is today. Um, well, it's so unprofessional. Um, it, you yeah. know, if you, there's no standardization. If you look at all the groups that are out there, there is no standard method of data collection. There's no standard method of training. There's really, when you look at from one group to another, you know, the, there's such a disparity in equipment that's even found. You've got some groups that have professional equipment, some groups that have consumer-level equipment, some groups that have no equipment. And the same thing with, can be said of training. There are some groups that have absolutely no training. There are some groups that, you know, they watch what they see on TV and they think that that's how you, how you use an EMF meter. They think that's how you properly collect EVP without looking at, you know, all of the, all of the pieces that should be involved in that, like the, the control aspect of scientific methodology. 
so yeah, there is there is such a, a great disparity among among it that yeah, I can totally understand why why a lot of people would think that. So talk about your training in our okay. past, because like I said, I was really impressed with that, and uh, that's one of the things that made me, you know, when I got your name from Marie, I was like, oh no, a ghost hunter. Then like kind of like it was kind of like how you described you know the electricians and all the other people you know. Then I looked at the right. website and I was like, oh wait a minute, these guys are for real. They're not right. Some well, people. training is an integral um, part of our past. It's very very important, and it is actually um, it's it's basic to our our mission. Um, there is so much um, that an individual really needs to learn before they can be an effective. Uh, investigator. Uh, there's, you know, scientific basics, physics basics, electrical basics, things that people that don't have any type of a science background really need to know if they want to be productive members of the group. So to that end, um, training is a very, very integral uh, part of our organization. We currently conduct uh, two training sessions a month. We generally have one uh, training session which con is conducted at our monthly meeting. Uh, another training session is generally uh, conducted a couple of weeks later. But our training uh, covers, we have a specific uh, curriculum that we've put together. It covers everything from how to use p specific pieces of equipment to how to interpret data uh, to, you know, basics of uh, some scientific tenets. So people that don't have a science background can come to the organization. As long as you're, you're open-minded, as long as you have uh, pretty good uh, reasoning skills, uh, they can come to our past and we'll show them the basics of how to be a scientist. That's really what it is, the basics of how to be a scientist. Um, we start out, we have, a, like I had mentioned, a very uh, specific curriculum. We start out with fairly basic and then kind of move up from there. We, t we have taught everything you know, possible that kind of falls within the paranormal realm, things that are not completely explainable, things that may be applicable to uh, what we're doing. And I think it, it really helps to create a more rounded individual. Rather than watching some of the people on TV, the way they use the equipment, I don't know if you've ever watched one specific show, and I won't, I won't, uh, I won't I say the name. Oh, maybe I don't know the show. <laughs> well, yeah, you probably have, but um, you know, one of my pet peeves is they they walk around carrying an EMF meter and just swinging it around, you know, looking yeah. for for signs of of a high electromagnetic field. That's a complete no-no. You know, that that's something that that's like um, EMF 101. You learn not to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, not only does the human body produce microcurrents of, of electricity, which might be picked up by you swinging the, the meter around, but there's something called meter deflection as well. So as you're moving the meter around, you know, if it's an analog meter, especially like a tri-field meter, you know, you're going to get a little bit of, of meter deflection just uh, from the movement of your hand itself. So that's all stuff that, you know, we teach. We, we show people how to effectively set up controls. How do we set up our experiments on investigations? How do we do equipment teardown and, and set up? All that stuff we teach. Um, so I don't want my investigators going into an investigation with me and, you know, standing around not knowing what to do. I want everybody cross-trained on all of our equipment. So each one of our each one of our investigators can pick up if another person's out. They know how to use the thermal camera. They know how to use the the EMF meter. They know how to use the magnetometer. So it's basically that's basically it. It's just it's a very very important part of what we do. I mean it's it's a nonstop, constantly evolving uh, part of uh, of our group. Nice, nice. See, that's what we need. We need more of that. 
I guess let's dive into like your typical investigation. How does that sort of thing evolve? Um, just before we even sort of get into the actual on-site investigation, how do you even determine almost as the same situation as when you bring in a new member? How do you determine if the person calling you with a haunted location is, you know, crazy or right. if their screen door is just loose or, or who knows what's <laughs> going on? Start with, I guess, how you separate the wheat from the chaff in the initial stage of the investigation and then take us to the on-site investigation and what you do there. Okay. You would actually be surprised at the amount of uh, crackpots that contact us. I mean, we have some, oh, we have some very unusual individuals that have contacted us wanting to come investigate. Um, it never ceases to amaze me. But anyways, how do we, uh, how do we kind of weed that out? Yeah. Well, the initial thing is um, the individuals will generally make contact through uh, uh to us through our website. We have an investigation request form. That generally is kind of the first step. The investigation request form asks a lot of questions. There's a lot of uh, things in there that may be uh, kind of disqualifiers for us moving to stage two for the investigation. Um, so that, that kind of helps. Um, we'll read through the, the investigation request, or if it's if it's someplace that we're contacting, obviously that's going to be a little bit different, but um, we'll read through the investigation request. We'll kind of do a little bit of of research on the location. If we can find anything about it, we'll pull assessor's records on the property. We'll see if you know if the, there's any uh, interesting history of of the property, anything that might may be a, a possible uh, trigger point for whatever activity is there before we decide to go out and investigate it or not. If it makes it beyond that, you know, beyond the initial uh, the initial evaluation, then we generally set up a a phone or in person interview where we'll uh, kind of get the lay of the land by speaking to the homeowner, either going there in person, which I generally like because I, I can read a lot from body language and just kind of get the uh, the full picture in 30 seconds just from talking to someone. So that's pretty important. If we can't, and if we cannot do that, we'll do a phone interview, kind of get our bearings from that, see if that's a, uh, if it's a legitimate sounding investigation, if, if some of the, uh, some of the events that they're uh, reporting are things that you know, are, are pretty typical uh, from other investigations that people have reported or if it's, you know, some things that are pretty far out there. Once we've decided that, you know, yes or no, we have a basic flow chart that we follow for that. But once we've decided uh, yes or no on the investigation, then our case manager will then contact the individual to look at some possible dates where we can come out and do an investigation, um, we'll give them a couple of different options uh, as far as what we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, we generally try to schedule them on Saturdays, Saturday evenings. Most of our, our people have full-time jobs, so it's, you know, unfortunately this doesn't pay the bills. So we have to kind of work around it on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So we set up the investigation. Um, once that's done, then uh, uh, Tiffany Pressler and myself, the vice president, will uh, designate the team structure of how many people are going to attend. That will be based on the size of the, of the uh, location that we're going to as well as the uh, suspected activity. We'll set up a team structure again. It'll generally be, well, really depending on the size, but we'll do, you know, three teams of two, two teams of three. It just really depends. Yeah. Um, our tech manager um, is, he always goes, our case manager always goes, Tiffany always goes, and I always go. Beyond that, um, the other individuals in the organization, we go on a rotational basis, so that's how we're able to be fair to all the people that are in the group. Mm -hmm. Um, and as I mentioned before, everybody is cross-trained, so 
whether I pick one person from Team A, one person from Team B, everyone knows how to use the, the same equipment. Everyone's been through the tra same training. Yeah. That's basically the first part of it. Okay. Um, we actually have the date. We go out there. We show up on scene, get a quick little tour, and I'm, I'm kind of distilling this whole process down. But That's fine. Go out, show up on scene. Um, we'll take uh, – we'll draw a, a map of the location first. We'll take baseline readings of the location. Um, we generally have about 15 different data points that we capture for our initial baseline readings. Um, we'll go – we'll set up cameras. We'll set up uh, – some of the experiments that we wanted to to uh, to do, and that's pretty much it. That's that's setting up the investigation and, and getting it going. Once the investigation actually starts, um, the teams split off after the equipment's been deployed. The teams will split off to uh, do the experiments, to do EVP recordings, to kind of do things on their own little in their own little groups. Mm -hmm. They'll rotate out after 30, 45 minutes, um, check another location, and that goes on pretty much throughout the night. Um, we generally set up, set up a uh, standard command post where the DVR system is, laptops, all the, the monitoring equipment that we use um, is situated. And that's pretty much it. It's uh, The night is generally pretty boring for the most part. We uh, just sit around. I like to say that most of our investigations are uh, hours and hours of, of boredom punctuated by uh, sheer terror. So, you know, we may have just a few moments of, you know, things going on, but for the most part, it's it's not what you see on TV. You know, TV really paints a, a brilliant picture of an investigation. You know, if you watch the shows, they show the equipment uh, set up taking, you know, all of five minutes where really that's not the case. It generally takes an hour and a half to two hours to deploy all the cameras and run the cabling and make sure everything is set up the way it's supposed to be set up. Then they don't show you on TV how long it takes to tear all the stuff down. But all they do is they pretty much show you when things happen, and yeah. that's pretty rare. And that's really far, few and far between. For the most part, you know, none of the magic happens until afterwards. When you get back home and you actually uh, sit down and dedicate the time to go back through the data and start reviewing all the evidence that you have. So, of course, you know, if there actually was a reality show about it, about ghost hunting, and they actually followed us around and did an investigation with us, it probably wouldn't sell advertising because it's so boring. <laughs> That's the nature of television, I guess. Yeah. Uh, now, you say when you go on site, you um, the people go out and they do these experiments. What? what right. Give me an example of what the uh, what an experiment would be, because when you when I think of the ghost hunting that I've seen on TV, you know, it seems like they're just running around with a tape recorder or an EMF right. meter. They're not really doing any experiments. So right. uh, talk about what you guys do for experiments. Okay. Yeah. Again, that's you know that's stark contrast to scientific methodology and how we actually prefer uh, to conduct our investigations. Experiment-wise, um, we usually we will do different investigations uh, dependent on the symptoms, I guess you would say, of the investigation or of the reported symptoms. Um, we'll do we'll set up trigger objects. We'll we'll um, oh gosh, I'm just thinking. But we did an investigation on Friday. Last Friday, it was at a uh, museum in, in uh, I guess it was kind of the uh, northern northern part of the state. There was a reports that there was a um, one of the trophies there was, that had moved. So one of the experiments that we did was we would set up um, we set up a, a piece of paper basically with grid points on it, and the trophy was on top of that with. Uh, uh, flower all around it. So if it actually would have moved, we would have actually seen any some, some you know minor tracks or whatever in there. 
we'll do experiments like that. Um, if we're doing an investigation where it's reported that there's a child uh, that's been present or that's been seen, we'll set up little, you know, little toy cars and let them be watched by the or monitored by the video cameras. Um, stuff like that. We'll set up the Tesla coil. Um, we'll do some experiments with that. Um, just various things. I mean, it really depends on the location. But we, we try doing controlled experiments where you know we're actually controlling the environment and actually trying to log data based on the controlled environment. Yeah. You say you have like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment, which is astounding to me because um, <laughs> I'm just stunned by that. I think I'd be just. I'm still amazed by just how well my TiVo works. Um, talk a little bit about your equipment and, and that sort of thing and all the various accoutrements that go along with that. Well, since we are not a ghost hunting group, and again, we are looking at primarily environmental conditions that are present during a paranormal event, the equipment that we have to use is, is basically very specialized for that. Um, there are a variety of pieces of, of equipment that we use that are not even uh, store-bought pieces. They're actually custom-designed pieces. The off-the-shelf equipment that you can buy, a lot of the, the, the thermometers, a lot of the EMF meters, stuff like that, most groups get. Um, there's not any control over the, uh, the tolerances. That's, that's the word I'm looking for, mm -hmm. the tolerances. So you really don't have any type of a a base comparison. You, you can't take a piece of equipment, know that it's calibrated, know that you know that this is what it's supposed to read, and then be able to compare it. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, they they just go out there, rip it out of the package, and and think that you know because it's going off the chart that they've got something good, but they don't realize that really, uh, you know, they didn't white balance it, if you will. That's an that's, yeah, exactly. That's a television and, term, but I uh, that's kind of the best way to put it. Right. And a lot of the the consumer stuff does not even have that ability. I mean, you you can't even. Um, you can't even balance the equipment like like what you just mentioned. I mean, it, it's just turn it on and go. There's not any type of actual calibration that's required. So a lot of the higher-end equipment that we use, actually, there is. There is actually calibration that's required. There's actually tolerances that are very specific and, and um, very strict. And that's all, you know, as far as um, being able to present us with good data, good, clean data, that's just what's required. And, you know, you pay a premium for that, just like – just like anything else, you know, you're paying for the name. You're also paying for the quality of the item. There's a, there's half a dozen thermal camera manufacturers that are out there, but you know, the best in the industry is FLIR, and that's what we use. So, you know, same 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 methodology, I guess you, you could say for that. You know, we may use a lot of the same equipment that other groups do. Most of it is different, but you know, some of it is is the same that other groups use. But it's it's the high end versions of EMF meters, the high end versions of digital recorders. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And it's expensive. I mean, you pay for that, honestly. Yeah, yeah. and and I presume, uh, much like any other paranormal research group or an anomalous research group, uh, the the funds to pay for that sort of thing probably comes out of your pocket, right? Um, it, no, not just mine. Um, oh, well, we and actually, the membership, yeah. Yeah, um, and as I mentioned before, we're going through uh, the process for an NSF, National Science Foundation grant. Um, so, yeah, we are looking, hopefully, uh, to get a large grant from them to continue our research. But, yeah, for the most part now, we are completely uh, member and user-funded. I guess, uh, well, you kind of already touched on this, but maybe just expand a little bit more because I found this to be fascinating, and it completely enlightens me to uh, something that I see on TV all the time. And you really sort of debunk the whole idea of the EMF meter as, as like, the ghost detector, even though uh, somewhere along the way it seems to have been misconstrued that that's the case. 
Right. Um, I guess just talk a little bit more here about the EMF meter and how, you know, some people, when you see them on TV running around with it, they're not even using it right. And, Correct. And, you know, it's just not all it's cracked up to be. You shouldn't just, you know, let some clown in your house with an EMF reader and <laughs> take their word right. for it if they say it's haunted. Well, you know, I'd still would love to know who initially proposed the idea that EMFs are, are um, have any correlation to ghosts. You know, I'd really like to know how that came about in the first place. Um, the, the majority of time what we use EMF detectors for are detecting large amounts of ungrounded energy. Basically, we're an unshielded breaker box. That, that's a huge amount of, you know, debunks that we've been able to do is, is you know, we've we've used the EMF meter to determine that, They've got a breaker box, it's unshielded, it's spitting out high levels of EMF in the, in the environment, and it's probably causing some, you know, some some brain issue. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know where that came from, where all of a sudden someone, some TV persona just decided that, you know, an EMF meter is what you use to detect a ghost. There's not been any research, there's no studies that have been shown to any satisfaction that ghosts or paranormal phenomena produce EMF energy. So, yeah, that's kind of a that's kind of a sore point for me too. I mean, people see that on TV and they think that that's, you know, that's kind of like the main uh, tool that we use and it's really not. It's kind of just an adjunct piece of equipment. It's definitely not one of the uh, prime pieces of equipment that we use. Yeah. I think you also pointed out earlier in the interview but and on the website um that if someone's just like walking around with the EMF meter, they're not even using it right. No, correct. Yeah, most of the equipment, you know, again, it kind of speaks to where you had gone with the training. Um, most of the groups that are out there and most of the paranormal investigations that are conducted, there there is no training. Um, the equipment that they use, you know, they've not gone through any kind of a certification process. They've not gone through any type of formal corporation training, you know, formal corporate training. You know, same thermal imager. Okay, there is, there's several groups that are out there besides ours that have thermal imagers. How many other groups actually have gone through FLIR thermography training besides me? Don't know. I haven't seen any other groups that have shown any uh, preponderance to the training aspect of that. You know, that's such, you know, you probably, we don't want to get into probably the details on that, but that specific piece of equipment is so complicated and it's so easy to misinterpret that unless you actually have some formalized training in thermography and actually know what you're looking at, it's so easy to misconstrue the results. And it's the same thing basically with any piece of equipment. Um, you know, somebody that's not familiar with what a normal reading for an EMF meter is versus an elevated reading, um, it's the exact same thing. The data that they're getting is invalid. They're not getting clean data. Yeah. So training really is a very, very important aspect of this entire field, and I really wish that more uh, paranormal groups would take that seriously because that's, you know, one of the reasons why we have such bad reputations, the, the whole paranormal field, is probably due to that very reason. People will watch the TV shows. They'll see how the equipment's not being used properly. They'll see how the methodology of the investigation actually flows, and they'll think these people are not seriously, you know, doing this properly. They're They're not serious about the commitment to doing this. If they're really looking for answers, they would be doing things the proper way or they would at least make an attempt to do things the proper way. Yeah. At the risk of, uh, you know, telling tales out of school, have you contacted these, uh, the people, you know, who we see on TV that aren't using the equipment properly, that are making, you know, these illogical leaps uh, based on faulty use of their of their stuff? Have you contacted these people and been like, hey, you know, you're not doing this right, and you're setting a terrible example for all the amateur 
people that want to get into the field. Has there has there been any dialogue between you and the people who seem to be setting this false standard out there? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's you know an important thing to remember is it's it's not just the TV shows. It's other groups that are out there too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, once you get the the uh, the ball rolling and it starts rolling downhill, it just kind of picks up speed and picks up speed. So yeah, we we've attempted to do that with some of the 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 shows that are on TV as well as some other organizations. Um, you know, sometimes we've been met with positive uh, results, sometimes not. You know, there's a lot of groups that, you know, will look at our offer and they'll think, well, you know, that's just not the way we want to do it. You know, we're not, we don't want to be a 100% science-based organization. You know, different groups really have different purposes. And I've kind of come to understand that more and more as I've, I've done this. You know, I really was very down on the whole spiritual aspect of paranormal investigation. And, you know, as I'm, doing this more, you know, I'm starting to realize that those groups have a purpose too. Um, You know, our group has a purpose. We, there's a specific thing that we want and that's science. Other groups have kind of, you know, they have a different focus and that's okay. They may not want to follow the scientific um, side of things as well. And it doesn't make either one of our groups right or wrong. It's just different. So, you know, just because they don't necessarily look for answers in the same way that we do or they don't think the same way that we do doesn't mean that, you know, they're making a mistake or we're making a mistake. It's just different. Yeah. And and what about the people that are just using the equipment wrong, like we talked about? Have you like have you been like, hey, dude, you're not even using the EMF meter, right? Right. You know, uh, do well, they get back actually, to you and say, you know, oh, I didn't realize that? Or are they like, it's yes. just entertainment? Um, no, uh, the ones that we've pointed out, we do a lot of collaborations with other uh, paranormal groups. Mm-hmm. And when we've done some of our, our collaborative uh, investigations, we've pointed out, you know, some some opportunities for education to them. And, you know, they've been, oh, that's great. Nobody ever told us this before. We didn't know that that's the way you're not you're supposed to do it. Or, you know, they, they like, again, you, what they're seeing on TV is not indicative necessarily of the way it really should be. Yeah. So by kind of pointing that out, yeah, we've actually had really good results with that. You know, people have said, you know, this is great. I, I really wish I would have known this before. Well, let's talk about the other crown jewel, I guess you could say, of, of uh, you know, ghost hunting. And I'm only using that as the catch-all term. I apologize. I know you're not a ghost hunter, but, you know, we're speaking mm-hmm. to a general audience here, so we'll, we'll try and keep it simple for them. Um, and that is, of course, the EVP, which is so enormously popular over the last oh. five years or so. It's just exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess – Let's start with sort of your take on EVPs, because I'm sure that your group collects a fair amount of audio from the sites you visit and stuff like that, and you've got we some do. great stuff, I'm sure, and you've got some bizarre stuff. So yep. uh, give me your take on EVPs and, and all that sort of weird weirdness. I'm a huge proponent of EVP. Um, I think EVP, uh, to me, it really represents um, one of the best forms of evidence um, that we've been able to capture um, there are very specific um, signature. There is a very specific signature that we've been able to identify in the vast majority of Class A or easily um, discernible uh, vocal utterances. Um, we do. We do a lot of EVP uh, capture as well. That's that's a huge part of what we do. So yeah, we do. You're absolutely right. We have quite a bit of of good stuff. We have quite a bit of bad stuff, and quite a bit of you know possible weird stuff. But yeah, it's good. It's it's important. On the website, you have a really awesome uh, classification system for mm-hmm. the EVPs, and something that you know I never really thought of. I, I have two classifications for EVPs: um, maybe real and not. Probably probably not real. That's <laughs> right. my classification system, um, and maybe a third that's just like 
crappy or what? You know, yeah. like, where'd you get that? Sure. Um, but you have actually, like, a serious EVP classification system that I really appreciated. So uh, talk about that system you guys have at the website. Well, you know, I think having a standard process or a standard classification system is, is really important, especially um, just due to the fact that other groups really are not following the same methodologies as we are. Um, as far as capturing EVP. So, you know, there's some groups that will use digital recorders, some groups that use analog recorders. Um, so by having the uh, kind of having a standardized method of that, of classifying things, um, it, it allows us to uh, kind of bridge the gap between different organizations. So our classification system, we've got uh, DC, which is direct communication, and that's basically um, – that the voice clearly answers a question or a response to something which is said. Um, that's pretty rare. I'd say we, we don't really have that um, that line of communication very often, but it, it definitely has happened. Um, PC is a personal communication um, where the voice says something that's meaningfully uh, directed at a specific person that's present. Uh, there's a random communication, which is RC, which is a disembodied voice that really answers uh, no direct question. It doesn't appear to be aimed at a particular person. And it really doesn't make any sense in any context whatsoever. That's kind of the, the specialized categories. And then, of course, there's Class A, which is clear, very easy to, to discern. It sounds basically just like normal speech. Uh, Class B is kind of a lower volume. The voice generally can sound warped, but you can still kind of make it out, especially if you're using uh, closed-ear headphones. Class C is generally the, the crappy EVPs. Um, you generally cannot understand what they're saying. They're, they're not clear whatsoever. Um, most of the Class C's that we get, uh, we just discard. Yeah. And they're not even worth uh, anything as far as uh, scientific uh, validity. There's different categories. We've got an event-related voice, a morphing voice, a uh, thread-related voice. Uh, there's a corral-related voice. Um, you know, the more the more ways that we can use to classify the sounds, the better uh, – the better uh, information that we have to, for our database as well. Yeah. All right. As far as, uh, like, you haven't broken down here, direct communication, personal communication, random mm -hmm. communication. Have you noticed any sort of trends as far as that goes? Like, uh, you know, you go to one place and it's always uh, DC. EVPs no, that's or, what's, that, that's really interesting. We've run some of our, our correlative qu queries uh, among some of the, the uh locations that we've investigated, and no, there is absolutely no relationship. And that's actually a very interesting question that you asked that. Um, no, there is not, and that's something that we're trying to, to determine why. There, there is no pattern uh, that's significantly uh, statistical among the locations. So no, there is not. And I, I presume the process with the EVP is the same as, as I've been led to believe, which is, you know, you get back from the site, and then you listen to them, and then you sort of, you know, uh, then you're like, oh, wait a minute, rewind, let me hear that part again. Type right. Of thing. Mm -hmm. There is a very specific signature that we look for for EVPs, which really kind of helps us to, to weed uh, weed out a lot of the chafe. Um, there is a very specific um, uh, spectral dynamic that we looked, look at, uh, so that really does kind of make our job easier. But, uh, yeah, that it's, you know, hours and hours and hours of reviewing audio. I mean, there's really no way around that, but, yeah. I'm sure. Um, and, and I guess, like, uh, you kind of touched on this with the classification system, but just what do you think of the – of just the sort of explosion of EVPs in the last, like, few years? It seems like um, – you know, it's kind of run away from itself in a way. Uh, it started out pretty novel, but now it's almost, you know, overdone. 
Yeah, it, re- it really is. Um, you know, again, if you watch the TV shows, a lot of times you'll see uh, they're not really capturing EVP maybe in the most um, the most proper manner. Um, a lot of the individuals will use a digital recorder or they'll use an analog recorder with no external microphone. So, you know, what that's going to do is you're going to pick up noise basically from uh, the internal mechanism of the unit itself. So electrical devices act as, as radio receivers as well. Uh, one of the theories that we have about some EVPs is that what you're actually hearing is uh, radio fragments or broadcast fragments, whether it's it's uh, analog cell phone, whether it's AM, FM, whether it's um, whether it's one of the other banded uh, radio type stations that are out there. You know, that there's a possibility that that's what you're getting is actual audio uh, broadcast segments. So yeah, there, there's you know within the last couple of years there has really been an explosion of electronic voice phenomena captured, but you know at the same time there's also been an, a greatly increased number of uh, audio transmissions that you know mankind has sent out into the atmosphere. So you know are we picking up something legitimate? Or are we picking up you know just fragments of man? I'm not positive. I don't I don't know exactly, um, but yeah. Is the sort of thing, like you say, you look for the specific signatures, that the sort of thing you can only really know from actually looking at the audio on the computer uh, when yes. it's splayed yeah. out for you? It's yeah. not something you can just tell from listening. No, generally not. There's there's a, a subsonic frequency or subsonic signature that's present <clears throat> on uh, the, the vast majority of legitimate EVPs. We call it an impulse pop, and basically it, it's a... Uh, an impulse event that occurs um, immediately preceding the EVP. So it's not something that you generally hear, but if you're looking at the spectral display of it, uh, it's something that's very easy to to uh, to discern. Hmm. Interesting. One other area of, of ghost hunting that you're not a fan of, it seems, from the website, is that is the orbs trend. No. You had a number of pieces at the RPAS website where right. you, you pretty much tear apart the orbs. Yeah. Uh, situation. Let's talk about orbs and why you're not a fan of orbs as ghostly evidence, if you will. Okay. There are, you know, as you know, there are several schools of thought regarding the orb phenomena. Um, our position as a research organization is that the orb phenomena is simply nothing more than airborne particulate matter, i.e. dust. One of the pieces of equipment that we use, that we deploy on our investigations, is a uh, very high-end particle counter. And basically what we'll do is we'll go into a location, uh, we'll use the particle counter to determine the size uh, and the um, uh, frequency of uh, airborne dust, pieces of, of junk floating around in the air. And what we found is that Almost without um, exception, almost 100% of the time that the locations that, are, that have high amounts of particulate matter in the air. Now, of course, this isn't something that you generally can see. Um, you may be in the most clean room that you could possibly think of, and there's still going to be a, a significant amount of airborne uh, material that's present. But with the, the particle counter, we've been able to show that the locations that have reported more orb activity are generally those that have very large, uh, very high concentrations of uh, particulate matter that's present. So from the scientific aspect, it's it's totally debunked. Um, you know, that that's pretty much a, that's a home run on that one. The flip side of that is, as I had mentioned before, there are a lot of, you know, different groups, I think, have different purposes. Um, again, ours is more of a scientific nature, but there are groups that are out there that are very much pro-orb. And, you know, by doing that, they're basically, 
you've probably seen the people on the websites talking about, you know, this is this orb is I can tell this is my grandmother looking over me. You know, she she follows me around the house, that kind of stuff. You know, that's okay. If they're using this as a coping mechanism and it helps them to feel better, it helps them to maybe grieve a loss, you know, that's okay. You know, I I really don't have a problem <clears throat> with that. You know, it, it's is it scientific? No. But is it is it wrong? No. You know, if it's if that's what they want to believe and they're they're you know, if it really helps them to cope with something, you know, far be it from us to tell them that it's dust. Yeah, but it's not exactly a good idea if they're going to, like, a third-party location and they're, like, taking a bunch of pictures and then they're like, Mr. Smith, your right. house is absolutely haunted because there's orbs all over these pictures. Absolutely not. Yeah, we don't no. want that. That that actually <clears> – <throat> that is a piece of equipment that I wish more groups would um, would utilize. I think if, if they had the budget for it and they utilized that, I think – a lot of other groups would uh, would actually see the error of their ways with, with orbs. When you go to a site and you do the investigation and then you come back and you dig through all the stuff, do you come out with like a final sort of report situation and what do you tell the people? We do. Uh, what do you tell, like what's in the final report, if you will, and what, you know, what do you tell the people uh, that, that you went to their house and investigated or went to their location and investigated? Well, a vast majority of the investigations that we do, we've been able to show um, just scientific basis for why they're experiencing the phenomena that they are. Um, generally, it's not something paranormal. There's generally a very uh, benign explanation, whether it's, you know, oh, an electrical uh, appliance maybe that's that's uh, emitting high EMFs, a water heater that's not grounded, a, um, a gas line maybe that's leaking. There, there's generally underlying, there's generally an underlying environmental condition uh, that's kind of prescient to the uh, experience that they're having. So a lot of times the um, the final report, if you will, is kind of like a home inspection report in what we provide to the homeowner. We're actually showing them things. A good example of that, we actually haven't released this uh, final report yet. We did an investigation last Saturday where we found what what appears to be, and we're going to actually have to follow up on this, but we found what appears to be a large concentration of, of carbon dioxide that's based underneath the house. Um, this individual has, they've had all kinds of, um, they've had all kinds of episodes in the house of, of seeing things, hearing things, headaches, uh, lots of things that are, are typically associated with high levels of CO2, carbon dioxide. And it just so happened that the uh, heating and air conditioning system had recently been serviced. Um, they had, uh, for some reason, they had discovered that the uh, all of the ductwork underneath the uh, the place had been completely shredded. They don't know what what had shredded it, but they had just recently done some service on that. So, you know that that's a that's a natural explanation for a paranormal event. So. You know, the, the final report will reflect that. It will reflect some of the dangerous findings that we found. Another investigation, we found a, a water heater uh, that had a line coming into the water here, the cold water line coming into the to the hot water heater uh, that basically when they had uh, either put it in or uh, when they had done some construction, they had grounded the, the cold water pipe. So, you know, there was there was negative uh, charge that was flowing through the, the, uh, the pipe. So that was another thing. So the... The final inspection report, I guess you would say, or the final report really is kind of a, a, a mini home inspection in that it shows a lot of underlying environmental conditions that may be uh, possible factors in the paranormal phenomena that they're, or what they believe to be paranormal phenomena um, 
in there. We never tell an, a, a homeowner that, yes, your location is haunted. No, your location is not haunted, simply because we don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, there's absolutely no way to 100% definitively say what is haunted and what's not. You know, the, we can say, based on our experience, based on the environmental conditions, you know, you've got something funny that's going on here, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, you've got ghosts in your house. You've just got something strange. And, yes, we do reveal that to the owners. Nice. And now you said the majority have, um, I guess you could say, prosaic explanations. Very for, much so. For the stuff. Um, what percentage would you say would be stuff where you, you can't rule out, uh, you know, where where the prosaic explanations have been ruled out and you're sort of stumped, if you will, you know, the unexplainables? Uh, less than 1%. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, definitely less than 1%. There's just a handful of things, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking back as we're talking. There, you know, In my 12 years of doing this, there is I can count probably on one hand the number of things that have occurred that I can't explain scientifically. So, yeah, 99.9% of you know, what, what we, we do, uh, there is a prosaic or there is a very – uh, rational explanation too, but you know, then it's the uh, that tenth of a percent that you know you really can't can't explain. Yeah, that's kind of what keeps me going doing this. Absolutely, absolutely. And for that small handful of um, anomalous places, if you will, have you noticed any sort of like trends as far as those places go? You know, anything? Nope. No trends. No trends. No. Again, the same same thing. Kind of as the EVPs. It's it's just a very random type occurrence. One of the things that we're looking to use our database for um, is for determining trends, and that's exactly why we built the database, is we wanted to determine if there were any trends among locations, and we've yet to really see any concrete trends. I mean, there's really there's really nothing that, that is, you know, 100% predictable um, yet at this point. Of course, you know, we're still doing investigations. We investigate nonstop and hoping for the Holy Grail, but, yeah, it's just not there yet. Yeah. Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Why are we continuing to play this little game when we all know it is moved to the next stage? Well, we've held off long enough, I guess, on asking the really cool question. That is, you know, what kind of spooky stuff have you experienced when you do these uh, investigations? Because, you know, people always want to know about the spooky stuff. So let, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, what kind of weird stuff? You said uh, it's mostly boredom and with fits of sheer terror, I think is what right. you said. Uh, talk a little bit about those fits of terror. The sheer terror. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I would necessarily say that they were sheer terror as they were excitement. Yeah. Um, I can't actually recall any investigation where you know where I've just been so scared that I've you know had to pull a dude run type thing. But <laughs> um, yeah, well, probably the one that sticks out of my mind the most is one that actually occurred uh, several months ago, um, not very long at all. It was let me kind of set it up uh, for you. It was a tuberculosis sanatorium in Northwest Arkansas. Uh, this particular facility is very, very large. It's a massive facility. Uh, from what we've been told, there was approximately 2,500 individuals that had passed away there. It was built in the, I want to say the 1930s, if I remember correctly. And back then, when you were diagnosed with tuberculosis, it was basically a death sentence. Uh, the experiments that they had, the treatments that they had, I should say, back then were basically very experimental. And as many people died from the treatments as they actually did from the disease as well. So they built these things called sanatoriums all throughout the country, generally in very rural, remote areas, with the understanding that these specific areas 
these specific facilities, when you were sent to these things, you were basically going to die. Yeah. That's that's what the the whole purpose of the facility was is that you went there away from the the general public to go die. So this particular uh, location is it's very historic, uh, lots of emotion, lots of energy tied to the place. It's a really cool place. Um, I've investigated this particular location. Gosh, I want to say seven times. This would have been my eighth time. Oh, wow. So yeah, seven previous times to this. This would have been the eighth time. And what what occurred was probably I don't even know if I can portray with ver with words uh, how incredibly awesome that this particular investigation was. But I guess I can try. We were starting to wrap wrap up for the evening. Um, this was approximately 11:30 midnight. Mm -hmm. And this was a joint investigation we were doing with another group from Texas. It was a collaborative event. We were on the second floor of the facility. It's, it's five. The facility is basically there's five floors. Um, there is the basement, which houses a morgue, and then um, the other floors were patient floors, and then the fifth floor was another morgue. So this was on the second floor. Uh, the second floor actually had not been reported by many people to be reportedly haunted. So this was, you know, there wasn't anything special. We just happened to be on the second floor. Uh, Tiffany, the vice president, uh, was looking down the hallway. Uh, we were just kind of all sitting around talking, and there's about 25 people at this point. She was looking down the hallway using the FLIR thermal camera, and she said, look at that. And, you know, I, I looked over and didn't really see anything. And all everyone's kind of gathering around, like, what are you seeing? What's going on? And I didn't see it at first. Um, nothing really started to happen um, to me. Um, but she's like, didn't didn't you see that? It looks like a little girl. And I was like, no, you're you're seeing things. It's starting to get late. You're tired. There's nothing that's happening. Well, no sooner had I said that than a, for lack of a better word, apparition appears on the thermal camera on the screen of what appears to be a three to four year old girl based on her height from the floor to the to the uh, uh, to the top of what would I, I guess would be her head. Mm -hmm. She is basically the same temperature as the uh, as the environment. She's not any colder. She's not any hotter. She's basically room temperature, but she has a very distinct form on the thermal camera. Huh. And I'm seeing this, and I'm thinking, you know, there's got to be some sort of explanation for this. Either it's, you know, there, there's some sort of weird airflow that's going on. There's there's something that is causing our brains to matrix this image and make us think that what we're seeing is is not what it is. Yeah. So I decide, you know, I'm going to be Mr. Skeptic, and I decide I'm going to walk out to where she's seeing this thing and see if, you know, if anything happens. See if, if there is some sort of a uh, an air current that's present or there's some sort of, you know, precipitate matter that's that's uh, standing there um, that, you know, me walking through it maybe will break it up on the thermal camera and you're not going to see it. Yeah. We all keep in touch with radios. Um, this particular, what we were seeing was about 25 to 30 feet away. So I start walking toward it, and Tiffany says, stop on the radio. So I stopped exactly where I was. You know, and I'm looking around. We're in a pitch black uh, hallway, and, of course, I can't see anything, can't feel anything. You know, I'm just standing there kind of, you know, okay, come on, let's something happen. Standing there, nothing's happening. Of course, um, she's saying, it's right there. It's right next to you on the radio, and everyone's still watching this on the thermal camera. And, of course, I don't see anything. I don't feel anything. But she's saying, it's it's 
it's standing right next to you. It's looking at you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so I decided I'm going to stoop down. So I'm standing, and I kind of stoop down a little bit, and uh, Tiffany radios. She said, it's right in front of you. She said, she's looking at you. I can see her standing right in front of you. So I stood back up. I walked forward. And as I walked forward, I got the most incredible chill that I've ever felt in my life. Every hair in my body stood on end. Next thing I know, Tiffany starts freaking out because whatever this was that I walked through basically completely obliterated my thermal signature on the thermal camera. And if you know anything about thermal cameras, when you, when you image a person, you, you see lots of red. You see a tremendous amount of red indicating the heat from their body. Mm-hmm. Whatever this was that I walked through completely obliterated my signature so what where I had been completely red and you're seeing you know my body is being red she said I was completely gone on the thermal camera and we had this actually recorded completely gone there was no there was no thermal image for me whatsoever so I kind of recovered from the, the incredible chill continue walking get back to the location where they all are and we're all standing around just completely dumbfounded looking on the thermal imager while this little image, the the apparition of a little girl is still standing there. Well, within about a minute after that, immediately to her right, uh, another apparition appears on the thermal camera. And this is of a a fully grown person uh, based on the height off the floor. What's interesting about this, it's the exact same... um, the exact same as the as the girl, and that there is no thermal signature that's being produced. There's just a shape that you can see. Uh, it's not hotter nor colder than the ambient environment. But this thing is is projecting a thermal signature on the floor. So you're actually seeing you're seeing the shape of this person, and then you're seeing a uh, reflected heat signature on the floor. But the heat signature is cold. It's a reflected uh, cold signature. So whatever this thing was, it was projecting a colder temperature um, on the floor than, than a person normally would. Yeah. So anyway, so you can see that the man is very, 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 very clear, um, much more so than the girl. I never really could tell um, about the girl. Everybody else could see the girl except me. Um, but the man is unbelievably clear. Um, to me, he is, I mean, it, it. you can see a man very clearly. He folds his arms at one point. He walks away from the wall at one point. And it's just, it's absolutely incredible. It's an incredible piece of footage. Um, that is probably, and, you know, thank goodness that we actually had the, uh, we actually had the recorder going at the same time as that. But that to me is probably one of the most damning pieces of evidence, uh, that I've ever seen. If that had been caught by anybody else, any other group, if I had seen this exact same footage, um, I, I would have to call BS on it. I, I would never, ever in a million years believe that it was real. I would think that it had been manipulated because it, it's, it is that clear and it is that um, – it's just that incredible. Both of the, the beings, I guess you would say, uh, both displayed a certain amount of sentient ability, which is something that, you know, that's incredible too. You know, the girl was interacting with me based on what Tiffany was saying. She was looking at me. She looked up at me. Um, and the man was folding his arms. He walked away from the wall. I mean, it, it wasn't just a simple – not just a simple reflection. There's not yeah. just, you know, a prosaic explanation for it. So that was probably the most incredible experience that I've ever had. Anything that I've ever seen is probably the most, uh, the most credible. Wow, that's a cool story. That's uh, sounds scary as hell. Um, now, what about? Have you ever run into a situation where 
you you felt any sort of like hostility from from whatever might have been there, if you will. Have you ever seen, you know been in that kind of situation? Never. No. No, not personally. Um, Never had anything where I just felt you know threatened by it and just felt like I had to to get out. No. That's good. What about poltergeist type situations? Have you investigated that kind of thing? Um, yeah, we have. We've actually investigated several of those. It's the exact same mo as our other investigations. We really have not been able to, you know, capture the. Uh, the Holy Grail. I would say that the closest to capturing the Holy Grail would have been the uh, the full body apparition at the at the sanatorium. But yeah. you know, beyond that, no. And that actually kind of segues well to the next point I have here in the notes, and that's you have a pretty strict policy on sharing of evidence uh, right. at our past. And and like I was going to say, this this cool footage that you're talking about, that's not on the website anywhere where anyone can check it out. So it must be part of your your evidence that you guys kind of hold back. Um, it's actually it's in the research database. Oh, it is. Oh, okay. The research database yes. we share with other legitimate organizations, but it's not publicly available for the simple fact that we're not a ghost hunting group. So we don't want to share our evidence for the most part and say this is what you know. This is this is a this is a ghost. This is a paranormal event. This is a true paranormal event. Just because we're you know, I, I kind of have mixed feelings about that. I think a lot of the groups that do that are really more interested in the sensationalism aspect of it. You know, they're they're really wanting to uh, kind of sell, do a little bit of self promotion, probably more than anything else. So they'll they'll purposely publish their evidence for the public uh, with the understanding, the full knowledge of that. Uh, doing that is going to, uh, you know, kind of uh, elevate them, I guess, in the public's eyes. And that's really not what we're we're doing. We are looking to share our evidence with research organizations, with other uh, scientific groups. Um, we're not really looking for the we're not looking for the attention, I guess, is what it boils down to. So yeah, we do have a very strict uh, policy on evidence sharing. We do share evidence, but it has to be with another uh, legitimate organization, not just. You know, ever any ghost group that starts up, you know, tomorrow, we're going to share evidence with. Just, you know, a lot of the evidence that we capture also, most groups, uh, unless they have the type of training, unless they have the type of equipment that we use, they're not going to understand the results of our stuff anyways. The equipment that we use, a lot of the data is, is analog data. A lot of it's digital data. They're not going to understand how to properly interpret the results of you know, a specific piece of equipment unless they're actually familiar with it, and the vast majority of the public is not. So, you know, really, the public, the, the evidence to, to the public is video and audio and pictures, and that's it. And that is a very small percentage of what we do. So, you know, by not publishing that information, I think we're actually doing the public a service rather than putting a bunch of stuff out there and saying, you know, this is paranormal when we're not sure, or providing them with pieces of information that are open to interpretation, especially if they don't have the understanding or the training to interpret it. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And you've developed this uh, Socius database system. Talk a little bit about that because it sounds pretty intricate, and it sounds like you have some pretty good goals as far as what that's all about. Well, we actually have two database systems that we use. Um, Socius is our uh, data evidence uh, cross-correlation database. Yeah. That's where we'll, we enter in all of the, the data from the investigations. We're able to run correlative queries um, among the locations, look for patterns, then look, look for things that are similar, look for things that are dissimilar. Um, yeah, that's a custom application that we developed and we use. The other database that we use is uh, something called Paratracker. And Paratracker is, is our case management and member management system. So we actually 
a lot of what we do is is very um, computerized. I mean, we, we've tried to organize and streamline the way we do things and keep things very organized. So databases are a very integral part of how we, we, do, we do that stuff. Like, uh, I understand why you're holding back the evidence and everything, but do you foresee any point where – you know, there may you guys may reach a tipping point or something where you may want to release, uh, you know, your information in a in a way that'll that'll be palatable to the general public, even if yeah. it's a website that sort of explains sure. how to interpret well, stuff. Well, you know, we actually have done that. I mean, we've really relaxed. If you look, we've got a public EVP collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We actually have some EVPs that are actually out there for the public. So yeah, we have a little bit relaxed on that. Um, but the, like I had mentioned, you know, a, a vast majority of the evidence that we capture is simply in a form. It's in a format that people just don't understand. They they won't understand how to properly interpret the results. And you know, it, there's really no purpose in providing that to the general public. But yeah, I, I definitely I can foresee a time when when that would change. Yeah, and right. especially with the with the exposure from the TV shows and, you know, as, as the public gets more awareness of paranormal investigation, especially legitimate paranormal investigation, there's probably going to become, there will uh, be a time when, yeah, that probably will be something we'll do. Yeah. And I can already see based on just your EVP page, well, one of the reasons why it's probably good to hold back your evidence, because as soon as you post the EVPs, next thing you know, you know, Randy and his Kentucky ghost hunting group is going to say they made the EVP and put it yeah, on Yeah, we've website. already, we had to put a, a staunch uh, notice on our website about that because we found somebody that was using some of ours. Yeah. So, yeah, it's unfortunate. There is so much drama that occurs in the paranormal community that, yeah. Well, uh, that's a that's a good uh, segue point because that's kind of the next thing I want to talk about is this big sociological trend of the ghost hunting fad. And uh, it's a fad. Let's not mince absolutely. words. Thank yeah, absolutely. You. It's a fad. It's uh yeah you know that it, it's the strangest thing. Um, I actually I write a monthly column for uh, another group called Paranormal Awareness Society, and my uh, column for this month was actually on drama. So um, yeah, it, it, the paranormal community is the smallest group um, of, of backbiters I think that I've ever run across. I, I I have no explanation for it. I mean you know some of these groups. That's, that seems like that is their, their mission and their focus in life is to cause problems for other people or other groups. And I don't understand that. You know, if, if all of us are supposedly in this for the same reasons, you would think that th- there should be a certain uh, amount of unity that's present, and there's really not. You know, the, the amount of drama, the amount of backstabbing, the amount of, of crap that occurs in the paranormal community, it, it's just – it's incredible, absolutely incredible. I'm, I've – you know – some of these people are, are just very immature. They're just – they're in this for the wrong reasons. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's huge, absolutely huge. What can be done about this oversaturation of ghost hunting? Are you just going to have to wait for it to well, burn yeah. out and the people you know, the people that jumped on the bandwagon will be the first to jump off once the next big exactly. thing comes yeah, up? Yeah, that's exactly um, – you know, that, that really speaks well to, again, the whole issue of us releasing evidence. Um, you know – we release evidence to other legitimate groups, and we ignore the other ones. And you know, if that's what it takes to bring more legitimacy to the field by weeding out some of the the, the uh, charlatans out there, that's what needs to happen. Um, you know, if it's just denying access to some of these fringe groups for for uh, investigation locations, if it's you know denying them access to legitimate scientific data. Then you know that's what needs to happen. Whatever we need to do to weed out um, some of these self-aggrandizing, um, you know, the people that are in this for the wrong reason. They they just need to 
move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the same in the UFO field. It's the same in all the other fields. It seems like it's just uh, the bane of the existence for the ghost hunting field because it's so popular right now. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, eventually maybe the people will all weed themselves out. Um, but, you know, we've taken the stance that we're just not going to deal with those people. So we, we deny them access to our data. We deny them access to our uh, research findings. We just we just basically, you know, push them aside and let somebody else deal with them. Eventually, maybe they'll get the clue and just, you know, decide that basket weaving is a more interesting hobby. <laughs> there you go. Now, at the, at the risk, again, of, uh, of uh, like, telling tales out of school, my main problem, I guess you could say, with, with ghost hunting groups is just the amateur nature of it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, to paraphrase Brad Steiger, who was on my show, you know, they watch ghost hunters yep. and, you know, they think they can become ghost hunters yep. and they don't do any of the background research. They don't know anything about the history of the nope. field. Or have any training. Exactly. Or have any training. Or, as you point out on the website, they have a serious lack of professionalism. Exactly. Um I guess I, I want to know, like, what being kind of a gossip, I guess you could say. What, what's the drama, though? I'm, I'm more, I'm more down on them just because I feel like, you know, they're they're jumping in with both feet before they do the legwork and pay their dues, if you will. Mm-hmm. I hate to use that expression, but uh, I do for this. Well, you know, um, really, my drama? problem with them, other than that they they taint the community with bad data, um, is that you know that they make it more difficult for legitimate organizations like my group to investigate some of the locations that we want to. You know, there there has been locations that we've contacted that prior to us contacting them, they've had another group that have, has come out there and investigated, and they've had such a bad experience with that group. It's left such a bad taste in their mouth that they think all paranormal investigators are like that. Yeah. They think that every group, you know, is is a bunch of unprofessional yahoos running around at night, you know, in the dark with their camcorders running. And, you know, that that's in stark contrast to how we actually perform our investigations. But, you know, at the same time, just because those people did it, we're all kind of in the same community, so we're labeled in the same uh, regard that they are. It's probably the same with, you know, the Bigfoot community, the UFO community. Yeah. You know, one person screws up and it makes everybody look bad. So, you know, my my whole beef with those people is that, you know, they're giving the legitimate people, the ones that are actually going about things the proper way, they're giving us all a bad name. Of course, once these locations and once people actually see, you know, hey, we're totally different, we actually do things in a completely different manner than they do, you know, then then kind of the tone changes. But it shouldn't even have to get to that point. We shouldn't even have to explain or we shouldn't have to, you know, show what the difference is between those groups and us uh, really are. I mean, we shouldn't even have to be put in that situation in the first place, but unfortunately that's the way it is. It's disappointing. Um, you know, it seems like nowadays the the path to becoming a ghost hunter group uh, is, you know, first you decide you're going to become a ghost hunter, then you come up with a cool name, Yep. then you make your t-shirts. And get your website. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then you become a ghost hunter. I mean, yep. Uh, just here in the New England area, which is, you know, ha- has its its gothic sort of background with uh, sure. with all all of its background. You know, there's so many ghost groups, so many paranormal groups yep. that it's just completely oversaturated. Yep. And it, it makes it more difficult for legitimate groups to actually get in and do things. Exactly. It's a it's a big problem. And uh, it's one that that obviously the people in the ghost community know about. But the people outside the community you know, in the other fields are probably just like, wow, ghost hunting is really popular now. But uh, right. I don't think they realize the, the long-term damage that might be done right now to the field of ghost of ghost investigation as a result of this fad nature of the field. Well, you know, there really, there is a lot of 
telltale signatures of a legitimate group um, that really could be used, um, you know, to determine the legitimate from the illegitimate. But you're exactly right. Uh, you know, on first contact, people are going to say, oh, another ghost hunter group. They're not going to actually take the time to look in and, and see what the differences are and see that there actually is a a strong different difference in methodology. But yeah, it's it, it's a bad deal all around. Um, hopefully, you know, I've been doing this for way longer than it's been cool. And, you know, hopefully it's, it's going to go back to the way it was and people will lose interest or move on to something else and, you know, let us get on with our work. And what, what was your reaction, I guess, uh, to this explosion? Like kind of like someone who is a fan of like a local band and then they become big and then you're like, they're not like they were back in the day, back when they were playing the, the bar scene when I saw them. It's kind of like that sort of thing. Where you're like, well, oh, you know, shit. It's really funny. Um, when I first started to see a lot of the paranormal shows coming out on TV, my first thought was, you know, this is really awesome. This is going to bring a lot of awareness of our uh, hobby or interest uh, to mainstream public. And I thought, you know, this is this could only be a positive thing. And I think it really was at first. It, it definitely was a positive thing in that it, it opened up people's eyes to the fact that there are groups of dedicated people that go out on their own time doing the types of things that we do. And, you know, that really opened a lot of doors for places to, to be investigated. But then you started to see more and more groups start. You'd have a group start you know, in one town, and then two groups, and then three groups, and then pretty pretty soon you have ten groups, and there really was such a a fast explosion of of the uh, of the paranormal community that um, I, I got very dis disheartened by the whole thing. You know, there there was uh, several times during my uh, tenure of doing this that I've you know wanted to just throw the towel in and just say you know. This is just too frustrating. There's too many other groups that are out there trying to do what they're trying to do, and it's you know it's too hard for me to get in locations because I'm having to try to compete with these other people, even though you know we're worlds different than those people. Again, in the public's eyes, we're the same, yeah. at least at first glance. So, yeah, at first I thought it was very positive. Now it's you know to me it's it's it, it's kind of shifted, and it's it's more of a negative. It's more of a liability on the, the legitimate researchers. And, and do you see the trend waning or getting worse? Because it seems to oh, it's getting worse. I mean, you know, to me, it seems like you know now there's more shows on TV, and now there's there's more people that are starting to do this. You know, it seems like it goes in, it kind of ebbs and flows. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with our membership. You know, around Halloween time, things start to uh, spike a little bit, and it, it seems like it's kind of the same thing. A new show comes out, and there's new ghost groups that start, and you know, a show goes off the air, some of the groups go out of business. And, you know, it's kind of – there's peaks and valleys. It kind of ebbs and flows. But, no, if anything, I see it getting even more, at least in the short term. It, it's becoming more and more of a problem. Yeah, yeah. Just based on my own observation, I would presume that it's got another couple years before it really starts to burn out. Just uh, yeah, from watching, so. I like to compare it also to the 9-11 movement because you kind of saw that explode like sure. about two or three years ago. And I would say 2007 really – was a really down year, I think, for the 9/11 movement, and, that, and it kind of correlates with, with sort of the explosion of the ghost thing. So maybe the people that were down with the 9/11 thing now they're into the ghost hunting, and sure. in a couple of years, you know, they'll be doing UFOs or some other aspect of the esoteric. Well, if it trends down like that, then I guarantee you we'll still be doing this, and hopefully it'll be making it easier for, for us. The ghost research field needs contraction right now, not expansion, right. and that seems to be part of the problem is the expansion. You know, there's just so many groups. It's, it's insane. And like, it is. 
I accidentally found out there was like a group in my town, and I'm from like a small town, and there's like two people in the group, and it's like, listen, you're not a group. If you're, <laughs> yeah. If you're two people and and you're investigating <laughs> one haunted place in my town, like, sorry, but you're not. It's sure. just the way it is, you know. Well, you know, and the internet's really, you know, that it's done wonders for people. You know, anybody and their brother can can start a little group, start a website, and all of a sudden they're a group. I mean, and someone over in England can find out about you know Tom and and Joe's paranormal group and you know BFE Kentucky. Yeah. So yeah. Now what do you now you said there's ways to tell the difference between a legitimate group and uh and you know an amateur an amateur hour fiasco. So why don't you like kind of share that sort of thing for us so people who may be interested in contacting one of these groups will know the difference so they don't get mixed up with one of the wrong ones. Well I think the easiest way and this is probably going to upset a lot of people, but I think the easiest and, and most efficacious way to determine it is look at their website. I mean, if you, if you look at some of these groups' website, you know, they've got dripping blood, they've got black backgrounds, they've got skulls, you know, they, they've got stuff that is not professional. They've got things that, you know, you wouldn't typically associate with a research organization or a scientific background. I think, you know, at first glance, the website, that would be the first thing to check out. If they have a, a legitimate-looking website, it's professional, you know, they actually know how to use a spell checker, um, you know, that that's probably one of the first things. Second thing is look at the member base. Um, if you've got a, a member base that consists of two people, like you had mentioned, that's not a group. That's just two friends getting together. Um, if you look at their equipment, thirdly, um, the most – If you, of course, all of my comments here are, are specifically um, – Tender toward a scientific bent, mm-hmm. you know, uh, groups that are uh, attempting to uh, research this from a scientific perspective. But if you if you look at their equipment, the types of equipment that they have, uh, the breadth of equipment that they have, the types of, of things that they do with the equipment, you know, that that's another uh, pretty good indicator. If you look at a website and it's you know it's got the black background, it's got the dripping skulls, um, you know, and, and their equipment consists of a, a camcorder. An EMF meter and a thermometer. You know that that's probably, you know that you really have to wonder: Does that group really have the proper equipment to scientifically look at all of the possibilities? Probably not. The next thing to look at is: Do they have a uh, personal liability waiver? Do they have any type of an insurance bond? Are they liability bonded? You know, we have a million dollar policy for ourselves and our investigators. So when we go to a location, you know the the homeowner can be assured that we're not going to tear the place up. We're insured, so there's no problem with that. Um, are they actually an organization? Do they actually have they actually been chartered by their state? Do they actually file incorporation papers? Do they file nonprofit? Oh, that's that's I should have I shouldn't have skipped this. One of the probably the number one way to tell the legitimate from non-legitimate is that a not non-legitimate organization will charge for investigations. Not all the time, but you do see that. And I'm seeing that that's an alarmingly increasing trend. And that's something that's very uh, troublesome for the legitimate researchers is that people will charge to do their investigations. I can't tell you the number of people that have contacted us asking how much we charge for investigations. We don't charge a penny. If anything, we we should be paying you for allowing us to conduct our research in your you know, in your home or in your facility. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these groups will, you know, they'll they'll say that we'll we'll get rid of whatever it is that's bothering you for fifty dollars or a hundred dollars, or we'll charge a hundred dollars to do an investigation. That's wrong. That is completely completely off base. So if there's a group that charges for that, you know, run. That's another one that that would be illegitimate. 
that's stunning. I'm stunned just to hear this. I, I oh, tremendous amount. There is there is a tremendous amount of groups that actually charge for it. You know, and, and they'll come up with lots of different um, excuses for you know justifications for the charging. You know, for gas, for you know their time. Yeah. For the equipment, I mean, it all boils down to they're trying to make money at it, mm-hmm. and th- this is not a field that you can make money at. I mean, really, this is not something that science, for, for the most part, is not a spectacularly lucrative field in the first place. But especially this, I mean, this is you're preying on people's emotions, you're preying on people's um, fears, and you're trying to capitalize on that, and that's just completely wrong. Yeah. So yeah, those are some pretty good signs. Um, there are, you know, with that being said, you know, I think we've both painted this huge doom and gloom picture. <laughs> but you know, with that being said, there are legitimate groups that are out there. Mm-hmm. You know, besides our path, there are other legitimate groups that we associate with um, that are just as uh, fastidious. They're just as um, detailed as us. They are in it for the right reasons. They, you know. But for every, you know, one legitimate group, there's probably ten illegitimate groups. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. And what about the Taps people? Are they now, I know you're part of the Taps family. We are part of the Taps family. Which sounds kind of creepy. Uh, don't drink the Kool Aid, please. Um, <laughs> what now? Do they oversee that sort of thing? Are they uh, fastidious about, you know? Very much. Um, believe it or not, what you see on TV is is not the way uh, that the Taps organization actually is. The TV show is billed as an entertainment show, and it really is. I mean, all of us are, are big fans of the show. It's it's entertainment. You know, it's a, it's a great show to watch. You know, they it's not billed as a scientific documentary. It never is. That's really that wouldn't sell advertising. It's it's a quasi reality sci-fi show, and you know that's fine. It has its purpose. It's fun. It's great to watch. We're all big fans of it. But with that being said, being part of the Taps family is great. The Taps family is a group of basically independent um, research organizations like our path throughout the country that have basically all come together under one big umbrella to share resources. And what's really been helpful about the, uh, the TAPS family is that if we have a question about something and we don't know the answer to it, none of our consultants know the answer to it, you know, generally we can post uh, asking for feedback on the TAPS family board, um, which is a, it's a restricted message board that we all have access to that we can share ideas, investigative ideas, um, membership issues, that kind of stuff, and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, ha- have a large forum that we can bounce ideas off of. The other thing that's really interesting is that it really opens up all of the TAPS family members to investigations well outside of their state, um, which is really nice. We've been invited to do investigations with other TAPS family members um, all throughout the U.S. Um, sometimes we'll get investigation requests from outside of the state, but there'll be a- another group, another TAPS family that's located closer, so we'll... we'll um, We'll be able to recommend them. They're very to get into the Taps family. It's it's pretty difficult. Um, you actually have to go through a, a lot of steps to actually be a member, and they try to keep it controlled for exactly the reasons that we've talked about. Yeah. They don't want a bunch of of yahoos in that group. They try to keep everybody basically in the same. Uh, with they, they they try to keep it so it's it's the same methodologies that, that we all have the same. Uh, the same goals, so it's 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 actually a very positive thing. 
Okay, yeah. The jury's still out for me on the TAPS crew. I'm not sure what their deal is, really. Yeah, the show is completely different than the actual TAPS family. Yeah. The, the, the show is, is entertainment, and it's not indicative of what being a member of the TAPS family is. Yeah, and I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I'm insanely jealous of their success. So, sure. I mean, and, and I'm man enough to admit that. I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna crap on them because they're wildly popular. You know, if anything, I'm just green with envy yeah. at, at how popular they are. But then I wonder, you know, because they are so hugely popular, you know, the trickle-down effect, which is what we've been talking about here for, like, the last half hour, it's a double-edged sword, you know? They, they have to incur the, the, the blame in some ways for what we've seen the ghost hunting field become just because uh, absolutely they, they yeah no there's bears. there's no denying that but you know in the same vein they've also turned back around and created the taps family exactly to yeah to to you know put legitimate researchers out there as well yeah and so make I sure that we're all on the same yeah uh one of the really cool trends that i've seen in the ghost hunting field and i i was looking at your website and and your membership and the people that are in your your various research groups and that's young people in ghost hunting it seems mm -hmm. Like, you know, as we said, it's a fad. We, we kind of have established that. And, of course, where there's a fad, there's young people. Right. Um, and, and that's really cool, though, in a way, because, you know, if we can draw in 20 young people, um, when the fad's over, we may still have five that stick around, and that's five more sure. than we would have had otherwise. Right. Um, Absolutely. I guess just talk about that trend of young people embracing ghost hunting because, you know, as we pointed out here on the show, you know, the UFO field is a serious lack of young people. Um, and we were, I'm, I'm jealous of the, of the ghost hunting field getting so many young people, but I am intrigued tremendously by that trend. So I guess just talk about young people and how they seem to gravitate towards ghost hunting. Well, I, I think it comes back down to the TV shows. Um, you know, that's the, the culture of today is, you know, unfortunately TV bound. So a lot of these, um, more youthful individuals will see the TV shows and they'll think, you know, hey, I'd like to get involved in something like that. Um, actually, if you look at our membership roster, it's about 50-50, um, young people and old people. Well, old people. I guess that's kind of a subjective term. Um, but it's about 50-50. Um, I don't know exactly what the split would be, but I'd say, you know, the young people I would I would consider up into – 25, 30, and then the other people would be, you know, 30 up. Nice. So, I'm still young. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of even for us. Um, but yeah, it, it's nice having the young people knowing, you know, that these people are really are dedicated to this, and that there really will be somebody to pass the torch to, as as it will. Yeah, because we need more of that in all branches of the paranormal field: ufology, cryptozoology, conspiracy, ghost hunting. We need more young people. If ghost hunters you know, takes off, and, and it obviously it has, and if it draws sure. more young people in, uh, eventually they'll start sampling some of the other fields, and, and they'll get oh, into Oh, yeah, those absolutely, and plus they bring a lot of new ideas. Exactly. You know, uh, you know the technology that kids are taught nowadays and, and the things that they learn are vastly different than, you know, what I learned 20 years ago. So, you know, it, it's nice. They, they really they bring kind of a, a breath of fresh air to things. Sort of a big-picture question to sort of wrap up the sociological aspect of the discussion where do you see the ghost hunting field in like five or ten years, you know, after this trend's kind of burned out? Will it recover? Obviously, I presume it will. I mean, we, you know, we still have ufology, and it's gone through serious ebbs and flows in popularity, and it's still around. So I presume ghost hunting will, too. You know, where do you see it in the future, and do you think it will, how it will handle, uh, the, the, you know, when its popularity starts to falter? Well, you know, I, I really think that the people that are truly dedicated are, are going to stick to it. You know, the people that really have an interest in it, the people that really have a commitment to it are the ones that are, are going to stay in it. Um, 
You know, in five to ten years, that's really hard to say. Um, there is so much research that's being done now, and, you know, science is just barely starting to, you know, understand a lot of the things about our natural world now. So, you know, maybe in five to ten years, there'll be more of an understanding of the unnatural world. I don't know. That, that's a really good question. You know, I really hope that, you know, mainstream science takes the paranormal phenomena a little more seriously than they have. Um, you know, maybe dedicate uh, some research to it that has not been uh, that has not been there in the past. So I don't know. I, I really don't know where we're going to be in, in five to ten years. Do you think uh, that there'll be more of an embracement towards your style, toward our past style of of research, with more of a scientific bent and a reliance on good technology? Because it seems like as technology advances, you know, it gets a little cheaper, more people can get, sure. get it, and and maybe that that'll be hopefully a trend that'll grow. I think so, um, but at the same time, as I mentioned way earlier in the show, um, there's always going to be a need for the other types of groups as well. You know, the, the spiritual aspect of things, the, the groups that, um, you know, are, are really more about the, the metaphysical aspects of, of this. Um, there's always going to be a need for that. There's always going to be a want. Basic human need, I think, is is something that, um, you know, it, it doesn't change. So... There will be probably more of a focus, I would think, on the scientific aspect of it, but at the same time, it's not going to solely be the one focus, I don't think. Yeah. You say you've been doing this for 12 years. You've done a ton of investigations, and even though only a very small percentage are, are what you would deem as unnatural, unexplainable, mm -hmm. um, based on all your years of research and your your work with other people in the field and other people in, in various other fields, uh, what's your big picture thoughts, I guess you could say, um on what ghosts might be, what do you think they are? Do you have a sort of pet theory or a hypothesis, maybe, about what is really going on? I do. Um, it's uh, it's pretty long and drawn out. Um, basically, though, what I, what I think is happening um, with paranormal phenomena or ghosts is that there is um, basically a parallel reality. There's a parallel dimension. Um, this other dimension, I think we are able to, at times, bridge the gap. Um, you know, Marie and I are currently writing a book called Parascience. Um, it, it's going to be exploring the links between consciousness, resonance, and the zero-point grid. Mm -hmm. And basically what what we're going to be focusing on, uh, one entire chapter is going to be on, on paranormal phenomena and how paranormal phenomena is is um, linked together inexplicably, ugh, I can't even talk, uh, with, with everything. So, you know, what do I think? I, I think that everything is linked. Um, I think everything that we see in our reality may not be the only reality that's there. Um, you know, there may very well be another two people just like you and me having this exact same conversation in another parallel dimension um, that we're not able to access. Uh, we're not able to tune, kind of like a radio receiver. You know, mm -hmm. we, we can't tune it to the station. Um, maybe the vibratory rate is too low. Maybe the vibratory rate is too high. But we cannot uh, view that, that particular uh, radio reception. There was a, a theory that I read Oh, it's been several months ago, and it was recently uh, rehashed in a book by Graham Hancock called Supernatural, where his book, he's basically talking about that the brain is a receiver of consciousness rather than a creator of consciousness. And if you think about that for a minute, that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty uh, that's pretty deep. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I tend to agree with that. What, what I think is happening is that a lot of the human experience that we have um, is simply being received. It's not something that's being created. So where I'm going with that is is ghosts, paranormal phenomena, I think are they're no more dead, they're no more different than you and me, they're just different, but yet we're all linked. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, they're existing in another area that we right. should have access to or maybe someday will, but right now, right now don't. And there are certain times where that um, that veil. access to, that veil is, is somehow um, broken to the point where we actually can have contact. You know, like the experience that I had at the sanatorium, you know, yeah. that I don't know what it was. That's what we're hoping to discover via uh, environmental conditions. Um, but that's, yeah, that that's really what I think is happening. And, and you said that you hadn't noticed any trends in those in those key cases, so you wouldn't really be able to say that there's any sort of, like, environmental thing that... No, that would not at this point. That, that really is, that is our entire, um, the premise of our group. That is what we want to do. We want to be able to determine what it is and then eventually say, well, here's the conditions that are necessary for the for the event. Now let's try to recreate it. Exactly, yeah. That sounds exactly like what you'd want to do. Is there anything you think that could be sort of like uh, the Holy Grail or the, the ultimate evidence, if you will, to prove ghosts to the people that are that are non-believers, if you will? And that's that's kind of a lousy question. I phrase it well, probably poorly, but I think you get the point I'm trying to say. I do get the point, and um, I, I don't think so. I think there's always going to be the diehard skeptics that no matter what evidence that you present to them, there's always going to be uh, you know some fault that's found with it. Um, I think you could present the most solid case ever, and it, it, you're still not going to get any traction from the non-believers. I mean, if, if, if look at look at how how the um, the world was believed to be flat. You know, there was all this evidence that had been presented. You know, the world's not flat; the world's round. But yet, still, the scientists of the day, until they actually had better understanding, you know, you were labeled a, a heretic by saying that the, the world was round. So. No, I don't think so. I think that there's always going to be skeptics. There's always going to be people that no matter what evidence is presented to them, no matter how overwhelming the information that's given to them, you know, whether it's personal agendas, personal beliefs, they're still going to, you know, just kind of believe what they want to believe. Yeah. It's probably the same way in the UFO field. You know, I follow the UFO stuff pretty pretty carefully too. That's something I'm personally interested in. So yeah, I think it's the same same in your field as well. Absolutely, yeah. Have you done any UFO investigations or are you primarily in the in the ghost realm? Uh primarily the ghost realm. We've got a um I guess you would say a cryptozoology investigation that is upcoming, but um no, we primarily stay in, in, in ghosts. But I would love to do something with the UFO, but you know the, the difference being that UFO events are generally um, after the fact. You're usually investigating something that has already occurred. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's not really any way to predict when a UFO event is going to occur. It's, it's generally after the fact versus paranormal. It's a, it's a little bit different. So, you know, I don't envy you for your job. I think you actually probably have it a lot worse because you're you're just investigating evidence that's left behind versus I'm trying to investigate evidence that's currently occurring. Yeah, well, I'm just an interviewer. So. <laughs> now, we talk a lot about on on here the need for sort of a, a little more sort of cooperation between the big genres, if you will. You know, sure. the Bigfoot people don't want anything to do with the UFO people. Um, the UFO people, they don't want anything to do with the ghost people. Sure. Uh, all that kind of stuff. Have you noticed um, that sort of problem in the ghost realm because I, I'm really unfamiliar with the ghost hunting field aside from 
what I've observed, really. I haven't really oh, yeah, definitely. Field. You know, as, as I was mentioning before, the drama that's in the paranormal community, there are groups that, that – um, yeah, that absolutely will not work with any other group. They absolutely will not. I heard a story. This didn't involve us, but um, I heard a story from a, a friend of mine in another group. Uh, she was telling me that they went up to uh, – I won't even say where, but they went to a city outside of their city uh, in a different state to do an investigation. They were invited by uh, um, the – property owner of this location. They went into this other city. This other group contacted them and said, you can't come investigate anything in our city without our permission. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, like, you can't come investigate anything in our city unless you ask our permission. So, um, yeah, there's, yeah, they, they, a lot of those groups just will not, they will not work with anybody else. Um, so yeah, I've noticed that too. Those, again, those kind of speak to what we were talking about, about the, the, the groups that really hopefully will weed themselves out and the groups that are really not interested in, in the scientific or the legitimate aspects of the field. They're really just in it for different purposes. Yeah. Attention probably. Mostly. Attention mostly. I mean, yeah. the, generally the groups that do that are the ones that are trying to get their name out there. They're trying to, uh, get themselves more known. Yeah. For God knows why, we don't. We don't, we don't well, want you know, these people. <laughs> they want. They want a TV show. You know, they want some sort of fame and fortune. They see, you know, like you had mentioned, the Ghost Hunter show. Um, you know, they they see the tremendous success that that they've been uh, that they've been able to attain, and they think that you know that they can do the same thing. I guess I don't know. I feel bad for them because the paranormal field is no place to make a living. Absolutely not. This would not pay the bills at all. Yeah, I can attest to that personally. I guess just to sort of wrap it all up, what's coming up next for our past? What do you have on the horizon for the Arkansas Paranormal and Anomalous Studies team? What, what do you have coming up? Well, we've got a large investigation this coming weekend at a cave in northwest Arkansas that we're investigating. Um, it is a return visit for us, and I'm really looking forward to that. we got some excellent Class A EVPs at the last one we went to. Um, Let's see. What else do we have upcoming? We just did a submarine. That's we did that one. Oh, wow. Uh, we did a museum. What do we have? What else do we have? I'm trying to think of what's on the calendar. Um, we have. We try to split things 50-50 between private residences and historical locations. Um, so, oh, we've got a battlefield that's coming up, and we have a uh, Indian um, what uh, Indian mound that's coming up, a state park that we're going to be investigating. Nice, nice. What about uh, any speaking engagements for you? Or I know you say you're uh, working on a book here with Marie. What's going on with that? Um, any of that we are, stuff? yeah, we're, I'm working on a book with Marie. Um, we're in the uh, initial stages of actually writing it. Um, we've put together the proposal and everything else. Uh, beyond the book, we have a uh, conference that we're working on that we're hoping uh, to get done, or hoping to uh, have done by September. We'll actually put on a, a nationwide conference. Uh, what else? Um, we are filming a documentary um, that we're going to shop around to some of the shows. It's going to be uh, primarily on the scientific method in, in paranormal investigation. Um, that's about it. That's all nice. I can really think of. That's the major projects. Um, Parrot Tracker, the application that I talked about before, our case management and member management system, we're, we're uh, putting the finishing touches on that. We're going to be offering that to other paranormal groups that want to organize themselves and become better organized entities. Nice. That's it, nice. really. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, Larry, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for being really generous with your time. I apologize for going way over the hour, but uh, the conversation was so intriguing that, uh, that I really just, it just couldn't stop here. Um, but I really want to thank you for coming on the show, for giving me so much of your time. 
like I said, I was initially skeptical at first, but you, you, you made a believer out of me in the sense of what our past is all about. I'm happy to see there's groups like yours out there. I want to see more groups like yours. I want to see less groups like local neighborhood ghost companies going on. Less of those, more our pasts. That's what we need. Uh, you're doing a service to the field of ghost hunting, Larry. I appreciate that, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of the results from your research and, and seeing some of this stuff come out to the surface as time goes on. Best of luck on all of your great investigations. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big thanks to Larry Flaxman for coming on the show. Of course, you can find out more on Larry Flaxman and the Arkansas Paranormal and Anomalous Studies team at www.rpast.org. A-R-P-A-S-T dot org. Check it out. Following up on some stuff from last week, I have just about secured the okay from all of the great members of the BOA staff for appearances on our little spin-off program, BOA Audio After Hours. They were pretty tough negotiators, I'll be honest. I have to send Leslie a bowl of all-yellow M&Ms. I'm not sure why, but that's what it takes to get her on the program. But we're going to get it done, and we hope to have BOA Audio After Hours ready for you soon, I think, actually. No news yet on BOA DC, but I've got a couple other things percolating. It's been crazy around here, folks. Just been crazy. But uh, there's a lot of things in the pipeline, and we'll keep you posted uh, at this part of the program next week. And now it's time for the segment that many of you know and love as BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Here we go. The email comes from Matt Richardson, who hails from the UK. Here's what he has to say. Dear Tim, just to say how much I enjoy your interviews, I'm based in the UK and listen to the MP3s. Brilliant stuff. The interviews with Peter Robbins, Nick Redfern, and Nick Pope were outstanding. Regards, Matt Richardson. There you go. Short and sweet. Thank you very much for writing in, Matt. I love my UK listeners. They are awesome. They hold a special place in my heart. I lived in the UK for a little while. It was an awesome place. Can't wait to go back there and see London again. Ironically enough, unbeknownst to Matt here, who wrote in about Peter Robbins, I have been in touch with Peter Robbins recently. We've been kind of talking back and forth. So don't be surprised to see Peter Robbins make his triumphant return to BOA Audio sometime in the not-too-distant future. If you would like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, there's two ways to do it. Either write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. Either one of those methods puts your correspondence in the ever-growing list of letters for BOA Audio listener feedback. All right, what else? Of course, the thanks. Big, huge, super huge thanks to the awesome crew at BOA. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, and Rochelle Hawks. Week in, week out, top-notch reading material. Rochelle Hawks has an outstanding piece we just posted yesterday about UFO-themed episodes in classic sitcoms from the Cold War era. You want to read this one. It will knock your socks off. It is outstanding. Leslie and Chiron have been on top of this UFO Hunters story over the last couple of weeks. Tremendous material from both of them looking at the UFO Hunters versus UFO Hunters story from a number of different angles. They are definitely holding down the fort here as far as keeping track of the UFO news in the esoteric media. I can't say it enough, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at banalofamerica.com, 
you're only getting half the story, definitely check out the columns and see why so many are making BOA a part of their everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. On the subject of donations, I want to give a big shout-out and thanks to the donors who have been giving us donations over the last couple of weeks. I was thrilled to check the account and was really surprised by the number of donations and the potency of the donations. Big, big thanks to those folks. You know who you are. If you want to be a part of that crew that is helping support BOA and BOA Audio and making sure the website and the audio series are available to all of our great listeners the world over, go to banalofamerica.com click the PayPal button, and make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards offsetting the costs of the BOA franchise. Now, here, as we close out the show, there's only one thing left to talk about, and that's next week's program. It is an ultra-ambitious episode of BOA Audio. We're going to make the call to nearly 8,000 miles away, Cape Town, South Africa, for the first ever American interview by Christo Lowe, head of South Africa's UFO resource. This really is an amazing conversation. Christo shares a ton of fascinating UFO stories that have happened in South Africa over the last century or so, including some just amazing cases, like the 1989 UFO shootdown over Botswana, the Bainbridge incident, crazy stories about UFOs picking up cars, UFOs moving giant rocks. It's just tremendous stuff. We're going to find out about famous South African contactees like Elizabeth Clarer and Carl Van Vlerden. We're also going to find out all about the history of UFO studies in South Africa and how it compares to its American counterpart. The big picture influences on the field down there, like the government, the military, and the media. How are they shaping the UFO culture in South Africa? We're going to find out from Christo Lowe. If you're interested in the UFO phenomenon and you're interested in the global aspect of this story, then this interview is a can't-miss edition of BOA Audio. It's tremendously educational. I learned so much from Christo about what was going on as far as the UFO scene in South Africa. As I said, his first ever interview on an American broadcast, and it's going to be on BOA Audio next week. We're traveling down to Cape Town, my friends. Strap yourself in. It's going to be a wild ride. On that exciting note, we're going to close it out here this week on BOA Audio. Thanks so much for listening, folks. This is Tim Benall, signing off.